Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So this week... Two of our kids had their first soccer game of, of the season, our older two, Troy and Daniela. And like at every game that happens, I'm sitting there calm, relaxed, enjoying the weather, enjoying the game, just so thankful to just be outside. But my wife, she's stressed out yelling at refs, kicking chairs, throwing over Gatorade. And I, well, I mean, perhaps that's not true, right? There's a little bit of truth in some of all of that. But the truth is, okay, both of us were way too much into the game, all right? When it comes to our kids playing, too much. But thankfully, at this particular game, we had another parent, wasn't us, yelling at everybody, which was super great because we could just sit back and I'm like, I don't have to do it. Like, uh, amen to this guy. I didn't say it out loud. I was just kind of sitting there. But I was just so thankful someone else could yell for us. But when it comes to soccer, Jess and I, well, we have very different experiences. I've never played soccer. It, involved a ton, it involves a ton of running, and I grew up on the wider side of life, right? And so things like soccer never really drew me in. But Jessica, she played soccer. She played all throughout high school. She played travel ball. She would travel around the country to, to play. And my kids have been playing it for several years now. And I just found out you're supposed to pass the ball at the inside of your foot. Like I had no idea. I know nothing about soccer, but she knows plenty of it. And you know, although me and her are both competitive, uh, she's a little worse than me, but when it comes to soccer, right, she understands the details. She understands far more about the game. And during it, I'm asking her what's allowed, what's going on, and she's explaining it. But you see, both of us get fired up in the game. She gets fired up because of her experience and her knowledge, and she knows what's going on. I get fired up because of the people involved. It doesn't matter if my kids are right or wrong. They should win, right? They should be justified. They're my kids. That's how it works. So although we have very different experiences when it comes to soccer, we both get hyperactive and, and kind of get explosive. And the same is true with what we're going to talk about today. Today can be like a very explosive topic. It goes against culture. It goes against society and morality. And some of you, you um, get fired up and explosive about this topic because of your experience, because of your struggles, because of your addictions, because of your temptations that consume you and drive you crazy. Others of you are sensitive and explosive about this topic because of the people involved. It involves your family member, it involves your loved ones, and so you are kind of hypersensitive to this topic. But then some of you, just this other group, you're really sensitive to it because you don't understand it. And what seems to be common for a lot of people is when they don't understand something, they get scared. And then fear can cause us to uh, drive us to say things, do things, act differently than we normally would just because we're, we're scared and we're nervous and we're uncomfortable with something. 
But regardless of where you stand on these topics and how it affects you, it's perhaps one of the most important things we can talk about in today's society concerning and talking about morality because it affects so many people. And like everything else we talk about, I ask you to suspend judgment until you really hear Paul out. And just a side note, this is really a two-part sermon. Part one's this week, part two's next week. Uh, We just didn't have time to work it all into one sermon. But what I hope you've learned so far about the Apostle Paul is that he's pretty articulate. I mean, he's intelligent. And when he says something, he generally, not always, he generally takes the time to explain it out, to bring you along, to help you understand where he's coming from and what he's actually talking about. And at the end of the argument, whether you land on agreeing with him or disagreeing with him, at least what I want you to see is that Paul never comes from a place of hate. Like Paul never comes from a place of fear or hate. He doesn't need to. And that doesn't mean that people don't use his words in hate and in fear and kind of condemning other people, but that's not where Paul's out and that's not what he is doing. He is well aware though, what he's talking about is countercultural, but it was for him back then too. We have to settle as Christians that the gospel and its implications are going to be countercultural. To be a Christian is to follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus said some pretty unpopular things back in his day. How do we know this? Because they killed him for it. So Jesus said countercultural things. Paul is saying countercultural things. To be a Christian and to understand, to understand that what we believe and what we value and the things we kind of hold to will go against popular culture. That's a normal thing. But like everything else, we have to understand that Paul is an equal opportunity offender. What that means is it doesn't matter where you are in life, he will offend you because the gospel is offensive. It's offensive to all of us. But remember what he's already said in this letter. We're gonna keep coming back to this for a little while. He says, it isn't my responsibility to judge who? Outsiders. But it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. Remember, he's talking to church people. He's continuing to indict them for the things they're allowing in their church. Hey, you guys are waving the banner of pride that someone is sleeping with his stepmom. That's not okay. Paul's like, incest is wrong. Shouldn't be a part of that. You guys are suing each other, taking each other to court. Hey, shouldn't do that either. Like this goes against our faith. (laughs) And Paul is now on the heels, excuse me, of telling them why, what they're doing wrong. He kind of like brings it together and he's like, hey, y'all are allowing this, it's not okay. You're allowing this, it's not okay. And then he's gonna come up with this massive vice list, these, these 10 things. He's gonna throw them all out there. Here's what he says. He says, and don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. I mean, you need to underline that circlet if it's in your Bible. He's like, don't fool yourself. Don't pretend. 
He says, those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or are greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. His point here is to contrast the believer from the non-believer. Those who identify themselves as Christians, he says, hey, Christians, this is really simple what he's doing here. He's saying, hey, if you're a Christian, guess what you need to do? Act like it. If you're not a Christian, okay, we're not, here, we're not here to talk to you. He says, but if you're a Christian, you need to act like a Christian. He is calling them to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In light of all, his, all that Jesus has done, he's trying to pull them and draw them into the lightness. Out of the dark, he's saying, come on, you need to live differently. Now, does this mean for the Christian or for us that our behavior saves us? Absolutely not. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ and through Christ alone. But the constant call, folks, throughout the Bible, you can see it over and over again, is that the people of God need to live as the people of God. The people of God need to be his representatives and to show the world who he is and what he's about in everything they do. We are to represent God in our lives. That's one of the ways we we bring glory or we glorify God. And this includes our sexuality. You see, God created sex. We forget that a lot of times, but he created it for the, for the male and the female to enjoy in the covenant of marriage relationship. And here's the deal. Nobody in the Bible, nobody is naive about how sexually corrupted people are or can be. But for the Christian. Christ has redeemed our sexuality. He's redeemed the former way of life. So we can now live into a newer, a different way through the gospel. But you see, four out of 10 things on this list has to do with sexuality or sexual sins. And now Paul isn't being hyper-focused like we are in our culture and only calling out one sexual sin over the other. For instance, Paul's not just saying, hey, if you look at porn, it's not a big deal. Hey, but those of you with uh, homosexuality, that's a big deal. No, no, no. Paul is blanketing sexual sin here. That's why he lists four out of the 10. We'll get to it in a second. But he's intentionally blanking them, all of them, like talking to anything they could think of. And what we have to understand in our society is that the world has been perverse for a long time. It's not a new thing. And in order to understand what Paul is saying, we're going to have to dive in to these words to fully appreciate what he's communicating. And I don't do this to be, to be crass, but I think one of the modern problems we have in our churches is we aren't willing to get a little bit uncomfortable or perhaps very uncomfortable to really dive in, to get behind what he's saying because we want to kind of stay on the surface level. We want to be polite. We don't really want to dive into details. But listen, that doesn't help anyone. Pretending this stuff doesn't exist doesn't help anyone. And so we have to remember that this letter was written to a church. It was read publicly to the church 
And I think many times we do a disservice to the Holy Scriptures when we gloss over the intentionality behind what Paul is saying. Because Paul isn't naive about people's sexual experiences. When what happened back then and what happens in many parts of the world today is far different when it comes to sexual morality than what we think of. Here's a quote about the ancient world. And listen, just hang in there with it. It's a little bit long, but it's the best way for me, for us to get an understanding and allow someone to paint the picture of what Paul is going after here. He says this, speaking of the verse we just read, he says, rather than referring to male prostitutes and practicing homosexual, uh, homosexuals, the translators do this to make it more palatable when we read, guys. They're trying their best. But he says, rather than referring to it as those, they are better understood as referring to those who are willingly play the passive and active role in homosexual acts. Paul is not discussing homosexuals per se, but homosexual acts commonly engaged in by Roman men who were also active in heterosexual relationships. In the Roman world, homosexual relations were invariably exploitative relations between men of quite contrasting social statures. It was not uncommon for married men to practice heterosexual sex with their wives and female slaves and prostitutes and to also engage in homosexual relations with male prostitutes or slave boys or other young men of lower class who had little freedom to refuse. Next slide. Romans did not think in terms of sexual orientation, and this is a big shift for us. Romans did not think of terms in sexual orientation or identities, but that proper masculinity was to be expressed in taking the active dominant role in any sexual act. To desire or willingly play a passive homosexual role was considered shameful to the society as, as a whole. But it was expected, expected that men of stature would penetrate people of lesser status, whether women or men, but not to be penetrated themselves. You can go to the next thing. So back then, sexuality was looked at very, very different. And some try to use this verse, that's why we're going to spend some time on it this morning, to say, well, what Paul's doing here is Paul is just banning the abusive power relationships of, of men forcing themselves upon lower class people or younger people. And listen, while it's unfortunately true that back then most homosexual acts of the ancient world was pedophilia nature, and I know it's, it's, it's unpalatable for us. Like who, who could think of something like this? That's just how it was. Paul is speaking against that, but not only that. He's also speaking against consensual homosexual activity. They didn't have a category for just homosexuality like we do today because they didn't identify with their sexuality. Look at this quote. He says this. He says, sexuality in our culture is constructed on the choice of object. Heterosexual versus homosexual. That's how we think in terms of the day. Both Greek and Romans male sexuality was constructed on the division between the active and the passive. It was very different back then. How they thought of these things was very different. And so what people try to say is because sexuality was different, 
Paul isn't really referring to consensual relationships, but he does. There's plenty of videos or people trying to take these words out of context. To translate these, New Testament scholar uh, David Garland does it for us. And again, you won't see it in your Bibles because it's not palatable for many people to, to, to read. This is how it would originally translate. Or do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexual morality, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those males who are penetrated sexually by males, nor males who sexually penetrate males. And I know that's a lot. And I know that's uncomfortable. But Paul is specifically attacking sexual immorality as a whole in their culture. He's being very specific with his word choices and calling them all out because this isn't thought of as a sin in their culture. If Paul would have said, hey, just don't do sexual morality, then it'd be like, all right, Paul, you, you told us about the incest already and I won't sleep with another man's wife. But all this other stuff is fair game. Paul's like, no, 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 no. Let me go ahead and list out all the stuff you're doing that is not okay. How you view this is not okay. But the idea for them, remember, they're not Jewish. So the idea for them that marriage is supposed to be between man and woman and a marriage relationship is foreign. It's not normal. It's not part of their culture. But the way he describes this in this list give, doesn't give anybody an out. He is talking to the person who is forcing themselves upon other people, lower status in a society where they could. He's saying, no, in God's kingdom, there's no room for that. Which means people who've been abused, people who are being abused in our culture today should find refuge in the church. Should be able to come and find healing and hope and help. Because Paul blanketed it back then like, hey guys, that's not okay. Like you should not be doing those things. And he's talking to those who prostituted themselves out, saying, listen, in God's kingdom, there's no room for that either. You're a child of God. Don't give yourself away to those things. Now, Paul, Paul isn't making a bigger deal of one over against the other. We, me, I'm bringing clarity into this situation so we can understand the worldview back then, understand what was going on because people are trying to be dismissive to this. But Paul isn't picking on one over against the other. He's picking on them all. He's saying for the Christian, it needs to be different. So not only does Paul include those actions as ungodly things, he talks about all sexual morality, anything outside the context of the marriage relationship. So having sex with your girlfriend or boyfriend, sin. Pornography, sin. Like it's not just one, it's all of it. Staring at holes through women's jeans, sin. Like it's blanketed for everybody to be like, hey, you need to get this, this sexual morality, this lust, you need to get it under control. And the idea, right? Remember the idea of sexuality only being confined to husband and wife was foreign to them. It wasn't part of the culture. It was for the Jews, but not for them. And I bring all this up for this point. Listen, Christian, the world is not ending because people are perverted. Like we just need to understand that. 
We just need to just embrace that and understand that. I hate to break it to you, but our society today is far better than any morality that happened back then. I mean, they used to watch people be physically torn apart in the Colosseum. At least today, the video game violence is fake. Back then it was real and they watched it and ate popcorn and watched people get dismayed and said, hey, it's great. I think Paul would be rather impressed with our laws protecting minors. I think Paul would be impressed with our laws against buying and selling people as property and doing whatever we want to them. I think Paul would be impressed. It's illegal to force people of lower status into sexual situations. I think Paul would be impressed that women have a voice and can say no. That wasn't normal back then, unless you were a married one. And I know the news tries to scare us all, and I know that things are changing, and I know people are far more open and expressive about their sexuality, and I know it's uncomfortable, but folks, the world's not ending because of it. It's not. We can take a deep breath. But what needs to end is Christians relying upon the government and politicians to legislate Christian values. Folks, it won't work. They've tried the whole moral majority thing and it backfired. It didn't do what people wanted it to do. And if you haven't noticed, it went the other way. Now, don't misunderstand me. Vote how your conscience tells you to vote. Care about policies. Allow your Christian worldview to influence who you vote for and the things you support. But for goodness sakes... Stop relying upon the government and politicians to save us. Folks, Jesus Christ has already done that. He is the one who saves. And he will continue to do so. Listen, the government and the, policy, the politicians, they're not greater than God's church the problem isn't that people sin. People have always sinned. The problem is the church stopped acting like the church. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 12. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church. He's saying you need to handle your own. Folks, God has not called Christians to save America. God does not call us to nationalism. And again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm a patriot. I love our country. But I know that God loves the world, not just America. And we need to realize that God is in the business of saving people in the world, not just building up a nation. Like, we're past that. That was the nation Israel. That's, that's not what America is. We as Christians are called to be kingdom people who are different and act different, and then people should be drawn to our God because of who we are and what he is doing in this world. But somewhere along the way, we stopped believing in the power of the church and started putting our hope in the government or in politicians, and folks, that won't work. The church has been around longer than any government system 
The church was designed to work within any culture, in any nation, in any time of the world. The problem is, we stopped believing that the gospel is great enough to save people. We stopped believing in the gospel. We think that somehow people's sexual sin, well, that can't be saved by Jesus. He can't do anything with that. You know, we can't speak into that kind of stuff. Sure he can, and sure he can. And the, Christianity has been speaking into this stuff for thousands of years now. But none of these sins are greater than the gospel. We can't stop sharing the gospel with people. We can't stop inviting them to come hear about Jesus just because they're in sin. Who would we share the gospel with if it wasn't for sinners? But we think that those sins are the untouchable sins, that those sins, well, we can't really help them with. We, the gospel doesn't really speak to it. The Bible doesn't talk about it. Like, mm, you might get offended. Folks, we're all gonna get offended if you read the Bible. He calls us all into the light. The gospel is offensive and perhaps we dislike and it's okay to dislike it. But being a Christian means being marked and understanding that we're gonna live this life of suffering. That it's not gonna be easy, but it's what we're called to do. And remember on that list that's full of sexual morality and different acts, Paul also lists idolatry, people who steal, people who are greedy, people who are drunkards, people who are abusive. Uh, people who cheat other people. And the whole point isn't to just call out certain people. The whole point of this is what it looked like to be a Christian. I mean, this is what it, uh, you used to live. This is how you used to act. This is the behavior that's normal for the culture. This is what it used to be. But God's called you over here. God's called you to come out of that. And God's greater than that. And God can bring you out of that. He's saying, listen, there's different ways to live. And because all of us have learned to live a life without Jesus, because all of us have played around and dabbled in sin, we're all gonna have to relearn what it looks like to live a life with Jesus. And it's uncomfortable, and it's hard, and it's challenging. But this whole vice list is simply a warning to those engaged in a pattern contrary to the gospel. He's saying, don't fool yourselves. If you're living in this, you need to check your salvation. He isn't saying if you struggle with it. He isn't saying if you're tempted in it. He's saying if you are living a life contrary to the gospel, he says, don't fool yourself. Check your salvation. Check out if you know Jesus and if he's done anything in your life. And then comes... My favorite verse in this letter, perhaps my favorite verse in the entire Bible. And I hope this hits you how it's supposed to hit because here's what he says next. And some of you were once, what? Like that. But, oh, and this but is so big. It's about Jesus. But you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Folks, do we understand the depth and the power of the grace of Jesus Christ? He wasn't calling all those vices out to throw shade on people, to make people just feel bad or, or talk about the society out there. He's talking about the people in the church. 
He's naming the sins of the people in the church we're dealing with, we're struggling with, we're called out of. And this is where those of you who've been in church for a long time need to kind of just kind of sit in this for a minute because Paul was well aware of their sexual sins. He was well aware of their life before Christ and their immorality. And Paul didn't pacify them. He didn't make them feel special because they struggled and grew up in a hard situation. He simply called them to live in truth and in the truth of the gospel. He said, this is who you are now. You don't have to live like that. This is what Christ has done. You can come out of that because the gospel changed his life. So he understood God could change their life as well. And now listen, Paul isn't teaching moralism that all you do is some good things and you're fine. And Paul isn't just teaching behavior modification. Like, hey, quit doing this. Like the gospel of sin management that God just wants you to be a pretty nifty, nice God. No, no, that's not what's going on here. He spells out why this is possible. Because Jesus Christ stepped into their lives and lives started changing. Life transformation is inevitable when you meet Jesus Christ. And perhaps some had an um, overnight change. We know others, we'll talk about it next week, were still struggling and fighting with Paul because they wanted to continue to live in that. But Paul said, no, no, the gospel has done something. Jesus Christ has redeemed them. He says, you have been washed by the blood of Jesus, Ephesians 1, 7. He is so rich in his kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son. You have been washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We can either be a slave to sin or we can be a slave to Christ. And the paradox found in the gospel is that freedom is found in Jesus Christ. Running to do whatever you want, claiming freedom and just doing, living however you please. Folks, most of you are old enough to know that leads to a bondage of slavery. That leads to a life of addiction. That leads to a life that doesn't work out very well. Living and doing whatever you want. You don't find freedom in that. But the paradox is following Christ, he purchased you, he redeemed you, living for him, you find all sorts of freedoms in him. So he's washed us with his blood. He's made us holy, Paul says. Look at um, Hebrews 10.10. He says, for God's will was for us to be made holy. That means sanctified. We've been sanctified by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. So we have been sanctified or made holy by Jesus Christ. What's true of him is now true of us. So we are called to live in our new reality as sanctified holy people. You're like, well, I don't feel very holy. He's like, I know, come on. Yeah, but the things I did, he said, no, 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 come on. You've been sanctified. Christ has already taken care of that. Live into this new reality in Jesus Christ. Nothing you do will make you more holy than what he's already done. You can't earn your way in this, this, this gospel. He's done it all for you. And he says, you've been justified, Romans 5.1. He says, therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. That idea of being made right in God's sight, that the theological word is justified. 
which means we have been declared not guilty from our sins because of Jesus. He has paid the price. He has done all it takes. And now we are declared free in Jesus. By calling on the name of Jesus, he saved them, cleansed them, and he can do that for you too. There's nothing you've done that you cannot be forgiven and cleansed from. Some of you walk around and live a life of shame. You've done horrible things, but you are not your sins and you are not greater than Jesus Christ. And you need to stop believing what you did and what, what you did is who you are. Because even though it's uncomfortable, and even though it's uncomfortable to read through the sin list and see all those things other people have done, Paul's next line were, but you've been redeemed, you've been set free, and the same goes for you. Whatever you've done, wherever you're at, Christ has redeemed you. And Paul is talking to the prostitute who sold themselves away into sexual, a sexual life. He's talking to the one who given their sexuality over to others to be liked and to be loved, thinking that if somehow I just give this to that person, it's gonna make the difference in the world. It, it, it won't. But he's talking to them. He's talking to the one who's taking advantage of young women by staring at them on computer screens. He's talking to the one who sells their body away so people can take pictures of themselves. He's talking to the one who's been unfaithful to their spouse. And he's talking to the spouse who has to live with that, endure that pain. And says, you can find peace and redemption and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And whatever you choose to do in that relationship, that's your choice. But you don't have to walk around with the weight of anger any longer. You don't have to live with an unforgiving heart any longer. He's talking to the one who has taken advantage of other sexual, other sexuality. He's taken advantage. He's talking to the power abusive one. He's saying you can be forgiven for that. He's talking to the one who's consumed with wanting more and never being satisfied. He's talking to the one who's addicted and consumed with drugs and alcohol. And he's talking to those who've been affected by all of that. He's talking to the one who's made sacrifices to idols. He's talking to the one who's abused other people or who have experienced abuse. He's talking to the ones who've stolen for a living, have taken advantage of people. Paul is talking to all of us. It's in Christ can redeem. Christ has set you free. When you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and accept his gift of salvation, you have been washed. You have been redeemed. You have been made new in Christ. You don't have to live in that. You don't have to feel that. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a what? New. You've started over. It's different. Born again. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. This is something new. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. When you call upon Jesus Christ, you can have a fresh 
clean start. You still have to deal with the consequences of your actions. We all do. But in the eyes of God, you were declared holy and justified and made right with him. And folks, God's grace is greater than anything you've ever done. There's nothing, there's nothing in this world that can compare to the hope found in Jesus Christ. The forgiveness, the love, the grace, and the freedom. And I just beg you to accept and rest in his grace this morning. Stop living in your shame and your guilt. and your, Stop living in all of that. Rest in him. One scholar says this. He says, Christianity not only offers a completely new sexual ethos and a new ethos regarding material possessions, but also brings about a complete transformation of the individual's. God's grace does not mean that God benignly accepts humans in their fallenness, forgives them, and then leaves them in their fallenness. God is in the business of whitewashing sins, excuse me, of not of whitewashing sins, but of transforming sinners. God is in the transformation business. And he wants you to experience that through Jesus Christ. And Paul is calling all of us to live in light of the glorious freedom found in him. And as Christians, we need to be the most understanding and sympathetic people in the world. We need to stop being so judgmental about people's experiences and what other people do if we're not even willing to share the gospel with them if we're not even willing to talk with them or get to know them or listen to them. Instead, we criticize and judge. Christians need to be different because we have this glorious hope and we know and we believe that Christ can save the worst sinner because we're saved and we're sinners and we know he can do a good work. And so this morning, when we come to the table, I ask that you come ready to just receive his grace and forgiveness. Confess your sins. Allow him to cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. Nothing you've done is greater than what he's done. Just remember that. Your pride tells you what you've done can never be forgiven. What you're saying is you're greater than God. Adjust the pride down some, right? I'm not greater than God. What he's done is greater than what I've done. And I'm going to rest in that. And those of you living in sin, those of you consumed by it, this morning when you come, let this be the action of you repenting. Let this be the action of you coming forward to receive his blood, to receive his body, and you walking away from that garbage behind you. Let this be your formal act of repentance turning towards his grace and redemption. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with heavy hearts. Allow us to forgive those we need to forgive, those who have deeply hurt us. And Father, help heal those wounds we carry from them. Father, cleanse us from our sin and our unrighteousness. Allow us to experience the freedom and the grace that You give us through Jesus Christ. Heal our brokenness, heal our wounds, and heal the wounds that we have caused in others. 
Father, we know that our works are nothing but filthy rags. So cleanse us through your blood and through your spirit. We know that today is a new day and today we are claiming victory in Christ Jesus over the stronghold and power of sin. So Father, we come to you this morning to take the body and the blood of Jesus, symbolizing our repentance and our receiving and our remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.